What's up, everyone? Welcome to another week of Big Digital Energy. Got a uh, got a weird setup today. We're missing Chuck, and Kirk is in Nantucket. So me and Mark are holding down the fort here in DW Studios. Kirk, how's the uh, how's the surfing out in Nantucket? I know you've been surfing it up. I'm sure, dude. The surf was actually really pure a couple days ago, so it was really. Um, I got, you know, the first great session of the year. So I'm feeling pretty good. That's awesome. Is pure a, a, a technical dude term? <laughs> I don't know. It's in my term because I a lot of times use words that aren't even like if I'm a golfer and I use a golf term that's not even cool, people will look at me weird, but I'll use it anyway. L- like you, I grew up on the Texas Gulf Coast, but my center of gravity was too high for uh, success in surfing. <laughs> Well, we're going to do a special... I'm not calling you short. We're going to do a special BDE episode uh, streaming from Nantucket at some point this summer. So uh, we're going to make that happen. And Kirk's wife has given us the blessing of coming up there and being degenerates for for a day or two. So we'll see you up there soon, Kirk. Absolutely. Please come. So lots of uh, energy news. Mark, you want to get us kicked off and get the show rolling? Yeah, as we have the past couple of weeks, we talk about oil, um, everything... The OPEC cuts and Saudi's lollipop cut gain has been given back and then some. Um, the big, I guess, headline this morning, or it was actually out yesterday, that uh, Goldman's taking its 2023 year-end price down from 95 to 86. It's really a supply-side uh, conclusion. And glancing at the headlines of the research piece that Jeff Curry and his team put out, it looks like there's a bit of an upward adjustment to the tune of 800,000 barrels a day out of the quote-unquote sanction three, my term, not theirs, and that's Russia, Iran, and Venezuela, about 800,000 barrels a day. Um, they cited the SPR as being a factor, too, on the physical barrels kind of sloshing around in the system. And so as we've also really pointed out time and again, this is – this is continues and continues to be a show me story, and particularly as it relates to global inventories, we got to see global inventories start to. Do draw you think really the SPR hard. release really has that big of an impact? I can't remember how much they they released, but it seems like it wasn't that material. Well, I, I think it was secondary. I don't know specifically relative to um, the segments or the pieces and parts on their kind of upside surprises, how much of a contributor that was. I didn't see a number. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've seen, um, a lot of talk on the internet about Saudi and OPEC. And I think I don't want to dive into the story too soon, but I do, because I think that Kirk's going to have a lot of commentary on this. You know, you look at what's happened with, uh, the PGA and live, and there seems to be a lot of power dynamics going on, whether it's, based in oil and gas specifically, or if it's uh, made its way over to golf. And so first, Kirk, what's what's your opinion on the whole live and PGA situation? I want to hear it from a uh, golfing, uh, I don't I don't know if I want to call you a, a I was going to say addict, but not addict, but, you know, just a big Ma- supporter. Uh, mogul, of the, mogul. Yeah, mogul, there you go. A player, a player, if you will, <laughs> right? Yes, there I'm you a go. player, boys. A player. That's how I call myself. <laughs> um, you know, I I think it's hilarious. Number one, I'm having a blast <laughs> watching this thing play out. Um, you know, I quoted Ben Shapiro actually in 
on Twitter and Ben Shapiro. I don't know if you know who he is, but yeah, um, created his own little media empire. But he said a quote that I thought was very telling of this live PGA piece. If you're a corporation, you go where it's cheapest and most productive to produce the product. If there are national security problems, it is up to the government of the USA to prevent investments in places like China or places like Saudi Arabia. Yeah. End quote. I think it's exactly, you know, money, money talks and, and the supposedly in the background, the PGA tour was had to um, sort of match live by increasing purses. And then they were involved in this giant lawsuit with live. And I think their money was running out. And, and so Money, you know, when you when you're fighting someone that has in in some ways an unlimited budget, at some point you have to just capitulate and say, you know, for the survival of this tour, let's do something. So to me, I'm actually in favor of it. I think it's going to create a better product overall for the fans. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk more about that later. You know, I don't follow golf. Um, couldn't tell never you. Played. Never played. I've never even played golf. Some people were disappointed to hear that on Twitter. But, you know, watching this from an outside perspective, you know, when Liv first came up, I'd seen all these people talking about it online. and I got you know. banned by by <laughs> other golfers for being a fan of Liv. Did you really? That's, that's what I'm saying. That's, this how, thing, like, that's how big it This big thing was pretty, was. yeah, it's pretty divisive, right? And... I saw people that were just huge uh, uh, PGA advocates, you know, talking down on live and saying that, you know, it's blood money and dirty money from Saudi that was funding it. And then this merger happens and, you know, all those people that have been talking, I mean, they got to feel a little backstabbed by the PGA, PGA. And it's almost like they lost everything that was holy to them. You know, the PGA is just like very American and all of a sudden they're, they're merging with live. But do you think that, um, you know, I don't know a lot of the details behind live or, you know, why they started, but I mean, it seems like it was pretty intentional to start this thing, slosh a lot of money around the players and eventually capitulate the PGA. Is that kind of fair assessment? Well, let's, let's, Go back. And this is Greg Norman, who is a great golfer, great player, Hall of Famer, and he's an entrepreneur that built a big empire in his brand. So this is a guy that's not a stupid guy. Some people don't like him, but Greg Norman has always been trying to create a better product. And he's been at odds with the tour for many years. And so this really was, I don't know, you know, the 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 background, but but the Saudis have always wanted to be like they're trying to make their presence known around the world in many sports and, and in many um, cultures and opportunities beyond oil and gas. So this is not something new from the Saudis. Yeah. And so Greg really was, the, I think Greg Norman was really the, the genius behind Lev of creating a better product for the fans, a more fun atmosphere. And, and if you, if you really look back um, uh, this is not something that is uncommon. This has happened in other sports um, and, and so to me, it's just really taking the game of golf to really what like millennials want. I mean, if you look at sort of what the trends are, you know, these golf courses by discovery land and others where people wear, you know, they're, they're barefooted, they wear t-shirts. A lot of people are being, um, attracted to the game of golf because it's coming more casual and more millennial cool. Yeah. And that's what live is. And so the tour is stuffy. They were, you know, they were suits and ties in the office. 
and the live guys don't. So I think it really boils down to that. Now, this has some digital undertone to it. <laughs> absolutely. What's funny is a lot of people have been making fun at, at Rory McElroy, who's been sort of the, the face of the PGA tour. He's, you know, arguably one of the best players in the world. Yeah. He's taken a real hit in his game. Like, you know, he was leading even yesterday, Saturday, I mean, of the Royal Canadian open. And he just kind of like on Sundays, he just sort of drops out. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he's putting a lot of stress on his shoulders, but, but he's been saying, I hate live, you know, the Saudis make comments about the Saudis, but he's wearing three Nike logos. I mean, Nike is basically a Chinese company. Yeah. So it's, it's funny how, people sort of go to their corners and talk about how bad someone else is. But, you know, us in the oil and gas industry, it's a global business and we find it in the harshest places and some sometimes in the unfriendliest places, but that's what the world's asking for. And, and the world's a lot more complex. You bring up a good point by, you know, the, the, <clears throat> the rebuttals will be, well, you're playing the whataboutism game, but I mean, Aramco is a 40 to $45 million sponsor of F1, mm-hmm. the Saudi PIF, Back in, I believe, 21, uh, became an owner of Newcastle in the Premier League. Yeah. I pointed out the sit-go sign that looms over Fenway, uh, which is owned by Venezuela, and then the whole NBA, China ongoing saga. So it's it's a bit tough in the modern world to play um, uh, what you expect to be kind of absolutes on morals, uh, moral positions and the selective outrage, and then all these relative complexities come in that, um, you know, you can, you, you can lose your footing pretty quickly. And I think that's what's happened to some of those on the PGA tour. I think people are realizing that this is an interconnected world, right? And well, it's very hard to just operate with, with in these vacuums and not have any association with other countries or organizations. And I mean, let, let's sort of take this out. For one, there was a great article I read about the AFL and NFL when some guys like tech shrimp, some, some very wealthy oil and gas guys, of course, wanted to create a better product and buy more expansion teams in the NFL. The NFL said no. So they created a, a product that I think known as the AFL. Yeah. And, Eventually they merged because the AFL was paying the players more. It was yep. a better product and the NFL capitulated. So, I mean, Kirk, have this you ever is seen, not a new story. Have you ever seen Digital Wildcatters? We made a video talking about how oil tycoons uh, created the modern day NFL league. And it's so they funny. They created Hollywood, bro. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> they did, yeah. and by the way, let's go back to Saudis for a minute. If, if it wasn't for the wars and the Saudis were very good business people from, from the beginning of, of the foundation of finding oil, the Saud family, but they were worried about the Germans. They're worried about the Brits. They're worried about the French. And so they actually gave what is now known as Exxon a huge contract over there. And that to some people would argue was what made the United States a real superpower. It was us getting our fingers in a global business for the first time yeah. and showing our dominance. So I'm like, why are people hating on Saudis? I mean, they, you know, of course, um, you know, religiously, maybe most of Americans don't have the same religious views, whatever. But when it comes to a nation, it's like, well, if you love America, then maybe you should thank the Saudis yeah. for well, making America great. Well, I mean, a big chunk of the wealth building and things like the PIF over the last 70 years, we've, we've been a big 
participant in funding all of that as big, big buyers over the decades of the miracle of, of Saudi and OPEC crude. So, I mean, I think it's like, if, even if you look at oil and gas and Saudi, you know, essentially there's modern day slavery happening over there where they take these uh, people from India and bring them over, take away their, their passports and essentially I don't want to say quote unquote force, but they do. They say you can't leave and you're going to work here and serve a term of a few years before you can go back home to your family. And, you know, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia sits on the human rights council. And it's like, you see these things happening. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it's like, it's global markets, whether you're talking about energy, oil and gas or sports. And, you know, those are just, those are all things that have to be balanced. And so I don't know what the answer is, but, you know, to think that, you know, like you talked about Rory, you know, that guy, I mean, one, he stuck his neck out on the line to be kind of the face for the PGA, you know, didn't take money like the Phil Mickelson's of the world. And now he's just kind of getting stabbed and stabbed in the back. It seems like, and it's like at the end of the day, you know, what, what can you really do as an individual, even when you're as powerful as uh, someone like like himself? So, so well, I've said, you know, I've said this. I'm like, Rory's a great golfer. He's a great player. I think he could be and should be back as one of the best players in the world. Stay out of business. I mean, come on, you're a great player. It's like when when famous, you know, Hollywood actors and actresses think that they know a lot about politics because they're famous. Yeah, exactly. Or or or, or Taylor Swift giving my wife credit here, but Taylor Swift telling like all of her fans how to vote when it's like, wait a minute, Taylor, everything you write about is how you get your heart broken and how you make bad decisions. So why would anyone listen to <laughs> you about how to make any decisions? Yeah. I, uh, I support any, any, um, hate towards, uh, Taylor Swift's advice, amazing artist and performer, but I agree with you there. I always like bashing on Swifties. So this is about gangsters and no gangsters. And right now, if you can hear in the background, I'm playing a little Tupac. I ain't mad at ya in reverence to the gangsta. I mean, I love gangsters and the Saudis are Kirk, gangsters. Kirk I mean, sitting, let's love them. Kirk sitting at his beach house in Nantucket blasting Tupac is just a uh, funny image to me. He's on the friendly <laughs> island. He's on the friendly island though. Yeah. I ain't mad at you. Just saying. <laughs> so what else do we have happening? Uh Mark, you got you got the rundown. Yeah. So <clears throat> one real quick item. Uh, Javier Blas was out with a piece this morning. I didn't read all of it, but basically uh the headline was or the message was, is it time to let Exxon back in the Dow Jones Industrials? They've been, oh, yeah, they got that. kicked out three years ago and replaced with Salesforce. Yeah. <laughs> and so a legacy member of the of, the, of the Dow Jones. You know, it's it's the lightning speed at which uh, these early virtue signaling moves have come full circle is is pretty amazing. I don't think I don't think Exxon has suffered meaningfully uh, over the course of that time period, being one of the better performing stocks. My favorite, not only in the market, my favorite not only screenshots from Twitter were in 2020 when Zoom, the uh, video conferencing software overtook the market cap of Exxon and everyone's yeah. tweeting out like, this is a sign of the times. And I'm like, guys, this is the sign of froth in the, in the system. And 
a, uh, a dislocation and valuations and now you look at it, I mean, Zoom's like, I haven't looked at their stock recently, but I mean, down like 90% or something crazy like that. And Exxon's just been ripping. And so I'm like, it's a sign of the times that, you know, actual valuable businesses that produce a product. Which one do we need more? Uh, definitely it, Exxon. Right. <laughs> well, I guess without Exxon, you can't zoom anything, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> you start kind of seeing the sequential order of importance of products. Um, but they got replaced by Salesforce. Yeah. I mean, let that sink in. Yeah. Why don't we ask Mark Benoff about how all of his giant downtown San Francisco investment is going right now? <laughs> Supposedly over how it's 50% vacant, if not more. And they're trying to get out even further because no one wants to work in downtown San Francisco. So let's applaud. Yeah. I mean, Mark's a lot richer than I am, so I can't ask him anything, but it, that's true. Being, <laughs> being bullish on anything in San Francisco. Uh, I don't want to talk inflows and outflows at the moment, but uh, <laughs> I got to, my so, last one's going to college here soon. So but I saw this chart. Um, someone posted it. I don't know if I took a screenshot of it or not, but it was showing um, investor sentiment around uh, ESG and can't remember what the other metric was but anyways regardless i mean it shows like peak esg investor sentiment was 2019 2020 and it's just dropped off a steep cliff ever since then and i think that a couple of things one uh the world has had a kind of come to jesus meeting with energy policy in relation to the russian ukraine war and what that's done for energy supply and then at the end of the, uh, at the end of the day, just returns as well. Like, you know, if you want exp you want exposure to Exxon and Chevron and the majors when oil and gas is ripping, and not having exposure to those types of companies really brings up some questions around fiduciary duty um, to return capital to LPs. And um, you know, I I just think I've seen that I've seen that sentiment change personally just with my interactions with people on the internet over the last few years, but to see it start being represented and, and uh, kind of quantified through data is interesting. And, and we've seen it in the regression in the shareholder votes here recently. We talked about the Exxon on scope three and, and additional methane monitoring resolutions and, and how they have regressed year over year in terms of support yeah. at their annual meetings and the votes. Um, you know, I saw a little piece I forget the source, but talking about how there's a move afoot to show, uh, to sue Shell and BP in particular because their um, advertising related to their uh, greener investments or their greener parts of their portfolio is misleading because they didn't talk enough about what they do in their legacy business. So, you know, really, what do you want? Everybody knows that is watching that, knows that Shell and BP are fundamentally in the oil and gas business, but you know, it's just another distraction of, of really optics and playing the game, so to speak. Yeah. I, 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 I think companies that have any, any virtue as it relates to doing the right thing by getting better and emitting less and lowering pollution and making sure the positive trade-offs outweigh the negative trade-offs, see it in, in, I've always thought of ESG in two dimensions. One is playing the game, and I don't mean that in, in in a cynical way. There's a lot to that. There's there's policy, there's compliance, there's regulatory, there's reporting, uh, there's measurement, there's 
you know, incentive compensation, et cetera. And it's a, you know, it's, it's part of the fiduciary responsibility of, of management teams and boards. But the other part of this is in the, in the oil and gas industry is particularly adept uh, fundamentally at what I call quote unquote, solving the problem, you know, actually doing things that make a material absolute impact on pollution mitigation, lower carbon footprint for legacy portfolio production, et cetera, and making, you know, conscious trade-offs about what they want in their portfolio, oil versus gas, for example. Um, we can get in a little bit to the next item because I think it, it dovetails or segues nicely, and that is oil is going in front of the world here in a couple of days, Kirk, and talking about this much-anticipated strategic update. I don't know if that's the official title. They, they've had you know, they've had some information reported on last week and over the weekend about, you know, what's coming, which is something we've also talked about, which is let's slow the roll on, you know, really contracting uh, that part of our portfolio, which is not only generating returns, and this goes hand in glove, but is also <laughs> generating, uh, generating the sources that can be used to in part fund uh, this, this innovation. Yeah. Uh, as it relates to other technologies and the other new portfolio um, options, or yeah. in the capital, but it's got to compete. Yeah, and, and so I well, think I'm what, not. I, I'm not going to take credit for YL and what he's doing, but but if you read the tea leaves, you know I've been talking about this and and advising this strategy for YL for for quite a while. Um, <laughs> so I'm not I'm not being the uh, the gangster that I am, but I am taking a little credit. We'll let you take some credit. We we um, never doubted it. We're reading the tea leaves over here. We're already on to it. I mean, you played in the USGA qualifier after gas station tacos down in Paraland, so <laughs> and played terrible, but I'm my head's still high. So you know, we'll go. We'll you you're gonna you're gonna hit the ground, but you get back up. <laughs> he, he's there's a few things that's interesting. Wild is very smart, and and what I think, um, you know, if you did a poll. And no one cares about polls about who's more who, who do you like better Shell or Exxon? No one cares. Who who returns? Who has a greater return on their investment? Exxon, boom, 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 all day long. So it's not a popularity contest. It only matters what the shareholders believe. And so I think YL has actually fallen Exxon's path, saying, "Listen, we've gone way over our skis on renewables. We've put all this money towards renewables." But it, number one, those renewables investments don't return the same as oil and gas. And two, that global demand for fossil fuels necessitates a slower transition to cleaner energy sources. So if, if Shell doesn't do it, Exxon's going to take market share, and that's going to be bad for Shell stock. That's so exactly right. And if What's you look, interesting is – go ahead, Mark. If you look at the numbers, and this, this was part of what was cited when Van Buren, his successor – uh, when he committed ben, to yeah. the reduction, Shell was producing 1.9 million barrels a day. Today, that's mm -hmm. 1.4, and a large chunk of that is related to the divestitures that they've made in that part of their portfolio. And I'm, I was wondering this weekend. Uh, I don't know what the reinvestment of that has has generated in terms of of, of alternative returns, but what would it have been if they had had those properties over that time, given what we've witnessed with their peers and the returns that they've generated w with, you know, larger volumes of 
crude and gas or crude oil in this case um, to produce into that, you know, into that big upsurge in pricing. And so those divestitures seem from that standpoint to be somewhat ill-timed. Absolutely. And, and so we're going to now call it good in terms of hitting that contraction target on our oil production. And we're going to maintain flat to maybe slightly up from here, which is pretty much exactly what Exxon is doing. There's two things that are interesting about this story is one is while he's going to New York, he's going to North America and to ground zero to raise money from an investment group that favors more oil and gas or a slower transition than Europe. So he's going to where the investors will actually pay him a premium. I think that's actually very wise and we'll see how it pays off. But secondly, Shell just recently, um, and I talked to the, the team at Shell when I was there about, they always are looking at where should we headquarter because they were getting a lot of slack, flack in the Netherlands because they're producing oil and gas and they're killing the Netherlands. And so eventually they threatened their tax, um, favorable tax status in the Netherlands. And so Shell said, great, we'll move to London. Now, let me make a, a potential, I bet, even though I know Shell and their, their old Shell, I don't know Wiles team anymore, but Shell hates the United States in a big way. <laughs> At least they're not, they don't favor the U.S. And part of that is cultural, but I am wondering if Shell may make a, I'm sure they're looking at it, but will Shell ever headquarter in the U.S.? What say you guys? I said, you can go find a tweet when Dutch courts uh, laid the hammer down on them for emissions, uh, driving down emissions by 2040 or whatever it was. It's like, what's the chances that Shell comes and headquarters in Houston eventually? Um, you know, I, I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. I, I would agree with that. I, you know, uh, the the little vignette that I talked about, about lawsuits over false advertising or misleading um, commercial messaging and not talking about their business when they're trying to talk about what they're doing with their future businesses. You know, those are, those are annoying taxes on the business, whether they're direct taxes or not. It, yeah. It's a, you know, it's just a, um, it sucks up bandwidth and resources to deal with. Right. It's things. a distraction in terms of time and the money you got to spend on, on uh, responding and fighting that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I would, um, I wouldn't be surprised well, to see that, but also, you know, there's a lot of cultural variables there too, that you, that you what is, what, hey, Mark, you're, you're an expert on this. What does shell trade at comparatively to Exxon? They're multiple. We, I, I haven't looked recently. I think Chuck and I pointed out that, you know, I think they were, uh, six or seven times earnings BP and shell that would be on 24 earnings. And we looked at Chevron and Exxon and they were kind of 12 ish. So it's a pretty significant gap. Um, so if they move, if they moved to Houston and got an immediate bump by four X, what would that, how much money is that? I mean, let's, that would be worth, you know, a couple months of distraction, wouldn't it? Yeah. I, I think there would be a, fairly significant um, sugar high of a trading pop at Do least. Do you think that discrepancy in multiples is based off of ge geographical location? Well, I think it's I think it's fundamentally returns oriented, but I do think that there is there is the headwind of operating in Europe versus the market 
yeah. and yeah. shareholder primacy, if you will, in the U.S., uh, which, you know, they, they've got a much tougher balancing act in Europe to deal with because yeah. there's a lot more government and outside stakeholder uh, consideration that yeah. European companies have to address. And we're getting a dose of that with with ESG in the U.S. It's relatively new to us because it's been pretty pure free market yeah. with, you know, with with the, you know, the growing regulation that we've seen and rightfully so in some areas. And so, yeah, I, I do think that, that that is a pretty significant part of it. It's funny, Julie's reading this book that was written in the 60s by, um, I can't remember his name, but supposedly he's like the god tier of marketing and advertising. And in the book, he talks about a case in advertising in oil and gas. She's like, it's so funny to hear a book talking about advertising in oil and gas. And I was like, well, the book is written in the 60s. I was like, back then it wasn't. It wasn't an industry that you had to be ashamed of working in or collaborating with. And so I was like how the times have changed where you could just talk about oil and gas being clients to now it's like you don't want anything to do with them. We, we ran through a phase, a little, little quick story. Um, when I was at Simmons, Matt Simmons was on the board of Kerm Gee, which ultimately was acquired by Anadarko. Um, I don't know if you remember, Kirk, there was a phase of time when around things like meet the press that Kerr McGee ran a series of commercials okay. and it was, you know, telling people what a spar is, telling people what a, a coal bed methane well is. And it, it was a little, it was a little disconnected with really the mainstream Sunday morning news programs yeah. and the consumers looking <laughs> at that saying, I have no idea what that is. Yeah. And so we had a, <laughs> we had a dinner at in Vegas right before our conference and I had Aubrey and Matt at the same table and you know Aubrey's had a pretty significant Kermagee legacy um and he looks across the table and he says Matt what the hell are you guys spending all that money on commercials for <laughs> and Matt's response was we got a really good deal on TV <laughs> but it, it's That's you hilarious. know it just points out you know now you see kind of the clever little Chevron cartoon cars and uh, everybody's really pushing the the uh, the lower carbon footprint of their fuels, yeah. et cetera. But yeah, people don't really care. Yeah, exactly. The, um, you know, kind of you, you were talking about pollution earlier, which I think segues into our last story, um, air pollution from the Canadian wildfires and inevitably being blamed on climate change despite stacking evidence that um it's not climate change it's arson and you know last week you saw all these pictures on twitter um new york city just skies orange and very hazy i was there brothers were you there i was there on i didn't I see you on thursday night why don't you post some pictures man Show you know i didn't want like. people i didn't want people to know i was in new york because you know how like the fans come the paparazzi. the paparazzi is just terrible there. You'd have no no peace. I get it. <laughs> I'll post one um, after this after our uh, recording. <laughs> I mean, he he's sometimes he's in Nashville ranting about hotel bars and <laughs> it's playing, our new, it's our, it's our new, go, it's our new segment. Where in the world night, is Kirk? <laughs> one night, actually, I hung out with MCJ and and the New York Climate people yeah. and i they were awesome man i mean these are 
awesome people. So I was actually so MCJ my my, my climate journey. Um, they're actually doing a meetup here in Houston next month, I believe. That's right. And by the way, you're invited because they asked me about you. I was like, Colin needs to be there. Yeah, I'll be there. Yeah, yeah they're awesome, man. I love those guys. They're 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 friends. I love their story. Yeah, they're. Starting, uh, I mean, you know the story. I mean, this is a great story. Let's let's give a few segue, but tell them about how these guys started with sort of a. Uh, did it start with a um, uh, with with Slack? And then we moved to a podcast and then no, I think they started. So Jason Jacob started and I may be off here, but this is the way I saw it is that started off with the podcast. Jason is a, uh, successful entrepreneur. I think he had started a, um, some type of product in the running category and then got involved in, um, climate and started a podcast and then built up a Slack community around people that just wanted to work on climate tech. And then they built a VC fund off the back of that. And, you know, I really respect, uh, uh, Jason because he invited me on his podcast and, you know, the podcast is my climate journey and you get some guy on there from oil and gas and he got a lot of hate from his community of having an oil and gas shill on his podcast. But like what I really respect about him is, you know, after that podcast, I saw his tone change towards oil and gas through the questions and things that he asked uh, through Twitter. And so he's a very thoughtful person. And you're takes, not a shill, you're a gangster. <laughs> Cursorily in the Tupac uh, uh, mood over there. <laughs> That's right. But he's uh, no, they've been they've been great, and um, yeah, they'll be down here in Houston. So I told them uh, I'll, I'll be there for sure. So it's good to hear that you had a good time. Yeah, great. Anyway, so were they? Nothing. Was everyone in New York blaming it on climate change? What was boots on the ground? There, take? there was there was quite a bit of that. And again, I, I when you're invited to an event, you know, I don't I didn't want to be like an asshole here, but I'm thinking. I thought you were a gangster, dog. I am a gangster, but also I'm like, listen, man, I'm, I'm going to roll in New York. You know, I could barely breathe because of the climate yeah. change. Um, here's the story. This is the same story in California. And I don't understand if people are just trying to create a narrative or they're ignorant or both. But the reality is um, Canada has not done a great job of managing their forests very well. They leave the brush. Um, dead brush all throughout the forest. And when that sucker catches fire, it's just like tender. I mean, it's an incredible way to start great fires. And yep. California, the reason like, you know, California's had all these crises around their, their um, fires and then hurting the grid is because they haven't been managing the forest well. I mean, that's a, yeah. and that's what's so frustrating. It's like, this is, all this is, is mismanagement of nature. And it's like, why aren't we pointing fingers at those people? I, I've seen I've seen U.S. and Canadians, you know, bar charts over the last few days that show a fairly long term kind of thirty year mm -hmm. and and beyond both number of fires in terms of frequency and then acres or hectares burned. Yeah, um, and no discernible trend. So yeah, I think if you dig into the IPCC commentary on it as well, it's it's supportive of either a low confidence or no discernible correlation. Yeah. I, something I didn't appreciate. I was watching this TikTok from this Canadian firefighter and his video was about, he, he was pretty disgruntled about 
support from the government and, you know, he's retired fire chief. And he said, I, I think what I didn't appreciate was how technical firefighting is. And there's just like in oil and gas, you have a lot of technical expertise that is specific to a basin or a play. And I didn't understand that that same thing applied to forest. And he said, we have uh, firefighters from down like in South America and other parts up here trying to fight these. He's like, they don't understand our forest. It's like, they don't, they don't have that, um, inherent, uh, technical knowledge of just spending decades up here fighting these, uh, forest fires. Mm -hmm. And anyways, it was just kind of going on this rant about how he's about how him and other retired firefighters have tried to band together um, both from a strategic and execution standpoint to fight these fires and the government won't pay for it and won't, won't support them. And so anyways, I think that, um, you know, one, it's just kind of interesting to learn about the technicalities of fighting forest fires and then seeing the lack of support from local resources to, uh, get it under control. And yeah, you know, I think that it really just comes down to mismanagement of, um, keeping the forest under control in the first place and then having the right people and processes when it does get out of control. I'm supposed to go to Banff this summer and I don't know if like, I don't know if it's even if it's habitable in terms of taking a vacation there or not. Hey, this is why I'm buying, um, shell again. Um, you know, I think YL is sort of looking through the noise and trying to be like, that's why he's coming to the U S because I think it's a little bit more favorable, but Trying to, you know, say, look, he acknowledges, you know, there's a need to balance profitability with investments in the energy transition and 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 meeting investor expectations. I mean, this is we I think everyone agrees that we're on this sort of journey, climate journey, if you will, no pun intended. But it's um, the demand for oil and gas is is huge. It's not going away. And, you know, if you if you haven't been reading other news lately, um, there's some great articles about just the fact that there's some huge challenges and delays to install renewable energy because of the grid. And um, the number of projects that are in queue is gigantic, and especially it's storage. What's interesting is there's a great article in the Financial Times over the weekend about, man, the amount of storage that are that's queued up is is amazing. It's huge. And but there's the, the problem is. A lot of these renewables are are trying to install in remote project locations. They're intermittent, so it's not reliable one hundred percent of the time. And the complexity of managing electricity networks makes it even more complicated. Because I didn't realize this, but well, I did, but to some degree. But there's insufficient processing capacity and limited information about grid capacity overall. So yeah. it's not as simple answer I and mean, there's all these projects but there some of them are getting denied some are being are most of them are being delayed because we don't know how or when to connect them into the grid and how to manage that yeah i mean it, which speaks it, to something we said last week about you know ERCOT and why ERCOT is an island or was that two weeks ago interesting yeah you know i think that one just underscores how complex the energy industry really is i mean and that's i think i think that that's 
one reason that we have this lack of pragmatic energy policy because people think it's as easy as, oh, oil and gas is bad, renewables are good, boom, swap them out. But I mean, that couldn't be further from the truth, right? And so anyways, I agree with you, like, you know, Shell's uh, approach to it is, hey, how do you balance all of these things? Because investors are telling us one thing, society's telling us another, and it's a pretty um, delicate path forward. Yeah, I don't say you, Mark. I, I, well, first of all, I don't think we've yet come up with any new laws of physics. So, um, having we spoke, oh about, shit, Mark, come on. We, 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 so we spoke. We spoke about it last week. You know, having more. You're probably you probably like the Saudis too. Have have a he's definitely have, a live supporter. A completely naive uh, take on it, but you know we need more. We need more technical perspective and expertise at the table. Mm-hmm. on untangling this big Gordian knot of a grid problem, for example. And I had a good conversation late last week, and I'll table it for later on uh, with someone who is quite expert in really all of the the nagging issues around ERCOT and the other um, other grid grid islands, if you will. And, you know, the, the conclusion is we're in – we're we're in for a big, big, messy, chaotic ride, and unless we figure out ways to simplify and streamline things, um, addressing again what we addressed a little bit last week is making sure that uh, the grid expansion, both in terms of robustness and resilience, keeps pace with all of the demand that we're adding. And I don't, you know, I, I just don't know how that all plays out given all the different special interests we have and i don't mean that just politically but uh that's a big part of it 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 kind of shoves everything else aside that really needs to be addressed much more urgently as we have all this new demand coming at us from evs and technology etc all right guys we're running a little bit long here so before we wrap up the show i want to take a moment and show some love for our friend SBA, sad Bill Ackman over on Twitter. Um, SBA passed away last week, young age oh, of 35 years old. And, you know, if you're over on Twitter, um, the the ripple effects are felt throughout the community. You know, it's a pretty unique situation where someone runs under anonymity. You know, the majority of us didn't even know who he really was or his name, but still felt it that we lost a, we lost a friend. And, you know, you look mm. at his interactions in the EFT community, um, it's just a genuine and kind and caring person. And people are sharing screenshots of, you know, all the messages of encouragement he would send them. And so, um, there's a lot of pain out there in the EFT community, and I know that you know I had a lot of love for him, and Digital Wildcatters did as well. And so, um, want to express our condolences to SBA's family and friends. So, I think we can all take something from him to leave a mark. And you see the the mark that he's left on everyone on on Twitter is pretty incredible. So, I think mm. we can all strive for that. I, I didn't know him, didn't have any direct interaction, but was quite. Um, an interested observer, I've always found him to be thoughtful and incredibly warm. And Twitter's not 
necessarily <laughs> a warm place. Yeah. Right. And so there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of underlying vulnerability there too, that yeah. I think is, is on display and, you know, just a real tragedy. Yeah. And, um, Absolutely. All yeah, the best uh, to his family and, yeah. and all the friends. Yeah. Lots of love over here from digital wildcatter. So with that said, we'll wrap up this show. Gentlemen, appreciate y'all doing another episode uh, with me. It's always a pleasure and we will catch you guys next week.